0: It's the Code St. Luke Podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show! Sidney Poitier, actor, activist, and icon. Sidney Poitier, who died last month at the age of 94, was a man whose portrayal of resolute heroes challenged racial prejudice in films like To Sir with Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He was the first black matinee idol and the first black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1964 for Lilies of the Field, which helped open the door. For other black actors in the Hollywood film industry. With his talent, charisma, and good looks, he achieved prominence as an actor in parallel with his social activism during the US Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s. And as the New York Times has noted, although often simmering with repressed anger, Poitier's acting roles tended to reflect the peaceful integrationist goals of the struggle insofar as his characters would typically respond to injustice with a quiet determination. Sidney Poitier broke the mold of what a black actor could be. Before the 1950s, black movie characters in Hollywood generally reflected racist stereotypes. But then came Poitier, the only black man, to consistently win leading roles in major movies from the late 1950s through the 1970s. His on-screen legacy has suggested to many, not least film critic Wesley Morris, that Poitier was as crucial in the Odyssey for Black Freedom and Equality as Martin Luther King himself. Like King, he projected ideals of respectability and integrity, and like King, he met hatred with reason and even forgiveness, as well as the ideals of nonviolence and racial brotherhood, both on-screen and off this sent a reassuring message to white liberal audiences before leaving him somewhat exposed to charges among some african american intellectuals that he was not militant enough in the summer of 1967 king introduced poitiers the keynote speaker for the 10th anniversary convention banquet of the southern christian leadership conference which provided the backbone of the civil rights movement their guest king said referring to Poitier, was his, and I quote here, soul brother, who has carved for himself an imperishable niche in the annals of our nation's history. I consider him a friend, and I consider him a great friend of humanity. At the time, Sidney Poitier was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, and a top box office draw. Yet in a country so riven with white racist squeamishness, Hollywood producers would typically not allow him to be cast as a romantic lead, despite his tall, heroic, classically handsome good looks. And he was well aware of this, of course, and more than once commented publicly upon it. But this may explain why he often found himself in limiting, saintly roles that nevertheless represented an important advance on the generally demeaning parts offered by Hollywood. African-American actors in the past. Poitier once said about his career during the civil rights era that he felt the heavy weight of both racial and social significance bear down upon him as if he were representing millions of black people with every movie that he made. It's a choice, a clear choice, he said of such parts in a 1967 interview with the New York Times. If the fabric of American society were different, I would scream to high heaven to play villains and to deal with different images of black life that would be more dimensional. But I'll be damned if I'll do that at this stage of the game. But as Poitier himself knew, his films sometimes presented characters who were a little too good. And although such films allowed white audiences to appreciate a black man in those roles, they also implied that racial equality dependent upon exceptional two saintly heroes, stripped of any troubling baggage or even sexualized identity. Sidney Poitier grew up in the Bahamas, but he was born prematurely on February 20th, 1927 in Miami, Florida, where his poverty stricken parents traveled regularly to sell their tomato crop. He was the youngest of nine children who wore clothes made from flour sacks and said that he had never seen a car, looked in a mirror, or even tasted ice cream until his father, Reginald, moved the family to Nassau 10 years later in 1937. When he was 12 years old, Poitier quit school and became a water boy for a crew of laborers. But he also began getting into mischief, and so his parents, worried that he was becoming a juvenile delinquent, sent him to Miami when he was 14 to live with a married brother named Cyril. Poitier had known nothing of segregation, having grown up in the Bahamas. So the laws and informal rules governing black people in the American South came as a shock. It was all over the place, like barbed wire, he later said of such overt racism. And I kept running into it and lacerating myself. In less than a year, he fled Miami alone for New York City, where life would prove quite grim. With $3 and change in his pocket, he took jobs washing dishes and working as a ditch digger, waterfront laborer, and delivery man in the garment district. And once during a riot in Harlem, he was shot in the leg. Homeless, he would save his nickels so that on cold nights, he could sleep and pay toilets. In late late 1943, during World War II, he lied about his age and enlisted in the U.S. Army, becoming an orderly at a veteran's hospital on Long Island. Feigning mental illness, he obtained a discharge in 1945 and returned to New York, where he read in the Amsterdam News that the American Negro Theatre was looking for actors. His first audition was a flop, Poitier attributed to only a few years of formal schooling and that he read haltingly in a heavy West Indian accent. But whatever the reason, Frederick O'Neill, a founder of the theater, showed him the door and advised him to go back to dishwashing. Undeterred, however, Poitier bought a radio, practiced reading and speaking English, and worked on his enunciation as he heard it from a variety of announcers. He then finally won a place in the theater's acting school in 1946, but only after he volunteered to work as a janitor without pay. His lucky break came finally when another actor at the theater, Harry Belafonte, as it turned out, did not show up for a rehearsal attended by a big Broadway producer. And so Poitier took the stage instead and was given a part in an all-black production of Aristophanes' Lysistrata, And although panned by the critics, it led to a job with a road production of Philip Jordan's Anna Lucasta. After years of sporadic work, he came to the attention of Hollywood writer, director, and producer Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who in 1950 cast the then 22-year-old Poitier in his first substantial movie role. Well, really his first movie role at all, entitled No Way Out. He played the first black doctor at a hospital where two white racist brothers are brought in with gunshot wounds. And when one dies, the other, played by Richard Woodmark, spews racial hatred and vows revenge. In the words of Michael Shulman, writing in The New Yorker, this set the Poitier brand as a bright, clean-cut, educated professional whose exceptional skills and equanimity make him largely acceptable to the white world, but who is often bound by circumstance to a racist counterpart. Justin Chang, himself writing in the Los Angeles Times, describes Poitier's performance in No Way Out as one full of repressed pain, controlled fury, and wholly understandable, deeply human fear. It often showed, even at this early stage of his career, a leading man's fully formed charisma. But the film was not a great success financially, and Poitier was hardly inundated with offers. In any case, since Hollywood was only just beginning to create worthwhile supporting roles for black actors. And so he bounced around between his sprinkling of acting jobs while still doing menial work and helping to run a restaurant in New York City for a short time. Nevertheless, in the following year, 1951, he married Juanita Marie Hardy, a dancer and model, whom he would divorce in 1965, but the marriage produced four daughters. And in 1976, he would marry again, this time, to Canadian actress Joanna Shimkus, with whom he would have two daughters, and to whom he would remain married for the rest of his life. But in the early 1950s, success proved slow-going before picking up steam, first with a featured part of as a priest in an adaptation of Alan Payton's anti-apartheid novel, Cry the Beloved Country, directed by Zoltan Korda in 1951. It was partially shot in South Africa, where Poitier was personally introduced to the horrors of apartheid, as he and fellow actor and activist Canada Lee were forcibly segregated in all respects because of their black skin. Despite this, further years of struggle to establish himself as an actor followed, But a turning point of a kind came when he was given the role of a rebellious but talented student, cast ten years below his true age, in Richard Brooks' explosive drama Blackboard Jungle. This was in 1955. In this movie, he played a troubled student in a mixed-race inner-city school. But however impressive he is in the movie, perhaps most importantly, this was his first hit film. And it brought a lot of attention to him and so more work quickly followed in such films as the engaging goodbye my lady in 1956 something of value in 1957 and a man is 10 feet tall also 1957 which is an adaptation of a tv drama in which poitier played the same role an especially important standout performance from these years is his turn as a supervisor on a Manhattan shipping dock, who befriends a drifter, played by John Cassavetes, in Martin Ritz's Edge of the City, from 1957. Now, this wasn't the first time the actor assumed the role of an upstanding African-American working toward interracial friendship in a context of great difficulty, but he does so with so much dexterity that it feels like the moment where Poitier firmly established the code for the persona that will come to define his career. Even more notable from this period is Stanley Kramer's Oscar-winning The Defiant Ones, made in 1958, which is a kind of racial fable that did more than any other single movie to really establish him as a big movie star. So notable, in fact, he earned an Oscar nomination for Best Actor as a prisoner on the run, handcuffed to a fellow convict and virulent racist played by Tony Curtis. But it was only at the insistence of his co-star, Tony Curtis, that Poitiers shared top billing above the title for The Defiant Ones, which was something of a breakthrough for the period. The Defiant Ones would remain one of Sidney Poitier's very favorite films, but to get the part he had to bow to the wishes of producer Samuel Goldwyn who was assembling a cast for MGM's planned, lavish production of Porgy and Bess, which came out in 1959. The behind-the-scenes story is that after Harry Belafonte turned down the role of Porgy, as racially demeaning, Goldwyn set his sights on Poitiers, who also regarded the musical as an insult to black people. But as Poitier tells it in his lively, unusually frank first memoir, This Life, published in 1980, Goldwyn, then a major player in Hollywood, pulled strings to ensure that unless Poitier played Porgy, the director, Stanley Kramer, would not be allowed to hire him for The Defiant Ones. And so as a consequence, he took the part, but later told the New York Times in 1967 that not only did he not enjoy doing it, but he had also yet not completely forgiven himself for doing so either. After such great successes as Blackbird Jungle and The Defiant Ones, Poitier became a fully fledged star in Hollywood, where he saw his purpose really and became identified with expanding the boundaries of racial tolerance and acceptance. And he attributed his ability to do this in part to those filmmakers in the industry who had a social conscience, many of them Jewish American directors like Stanley Kramer, Martin Ritt, and Richard Brooks. In the year following The Defiant Ones in 1959, Poitier returned to stage work on Broadway in Lorraine Hansberry's emotionally resonant A Raisin in the Sun, which won ecstatic reviews for both play and performer. Set in a cramped apartment on Chicago's south side, A Raisin in the Sun centers on Poitiers' character of Walter Lee Younger's dreams of pulling his family out of poverty by investing a $10,000 life insurance check in a liquor store. He repeated the role in the 1961 film version of the play, which also included his friend Ruby D, with whom he would work on many occasions, and who had also been in the play itself. In director Martin Ritz, underrated Paris Blues from 1961, Poitier and Paul Newman play expatriate American jazz musicians, romancing American tourists played by Diane Carroll and Joanne Woodward. Now, tall, athletic, and dazzlingly handsome. It's one of those rare films in which Poitier had the opportunity to be both romantic and sexy, itself a revolutionary thing for a black performer in a Hollywood movie of its time. Initially, the plan was to have Poitiers and Woodward's characters fall in love, but the studio refused to allow it. Now, despite the romantic elements, racial politics are still to the fore, and they coincide with a quite a substantial role, with Poitier and Carroll's characters debating the merits of black life in the United States versus black life abroad, which is something that happens in the contemporary 2021 film, Passing, by the way, with which it bears quite an interesting comparison. Sidney Poitier's best actor award came six years after his nomination for the Defiant Ones in 1964, the same year that Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize. The award was for his performance in Lilies of the Field in which Poitier played Homer Smith, a good natured traveling handyman who builds a chapel for a group of German nuns who fled Hitler's Germany from the wilds of the American Southwest. Now, until then, only one black actor had received a competitive acting Oscar, and that was, of course, Hattie McDaniel in 1940 for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. But Lilies of the Field is a very different kind of movie. A sweet, low-budget film, shot in only 14 days, and it was a surprise hit. It's also a movie that wears its politics rather lightly, and has dated rather well, I think. And in its own quiet way, as suggested by history professor Aram Goodsian, Lilies of the Field, like the real-life horrifying footage shown on television news of the day of water hoses and police dogs attacking civil rights activists, the movie did as much to foster a swelling support for racial integration and justice as anything else. However, just as often, Poitier would find himself playing virtuous messengers of racial harmony in somewhat more overly sentimental films like A Patch of Blue in 1965 with Shelley Winters, or find himself taking race-neutral roles in less-than-memorable movies like um, The Bedford Incident, a Cold War naval drama in which he plays a newspaper reporter from the same year, 1965 or as a former cavalry sergeant in the western Duel at Diablo in 1966. He was also among the all-star cast in the 1965 biblical epic The Greatest Story Ever Told. But it was 1967 that is Sidney Poitier's Anis Mirabilis, the point at which he had reached the peak of his popularity. Performing in three films whose combined box office receipts made him the number one movie star in America. Do Sir With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. In each of these films, he plays a black man who, with great civility and extraordinary character, helps to enlighten the regressive white characters among whom he finds himself. Though, almost shockingly, Poitier wasn't nominated for an Oscar in any of these roles. In the first, among this triumvirate, a kind of reversal of the situation in Blackboard Jungle, in fact, he plays an immigrant teacher in The British Maid to Serve with Love, someone who comes to tame a class of teenage ruffians in London's East End, and which is based on E.R. Braithwaite's autobiographical bestseller of the same title. The movie itself proved a huge hit, one of the biggest, in fact, of 1967, and Poitier, having negotiated a share of the profits to keep the budget low, found himself becoming an increasingly wealthy man. Canadian and Hollywood filmmaker Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night gave Poitier one of his best, most meatiest roles and the single line reading that he is almost certainly most identified with. And that comes, of course, when Rod Steiger in the film, who plays a small town Mississippi racist police chief with whom um, Poitiers plays opposite, fires the N-word at Poitier's character, Virgil Tips, who is a razor sharp, immaculately cool homicide detective from Philadelphia. Steiger then asks what they call him up there, quote unquote. And Poitier's answer comes with a steady and deliberate accent on every syllable. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Now I can't possibly do it justice, but that line reading was a culturally significant moment. And in retrospect, one of the most important in Hollywood history, I think it helps make for what is arguably Poitier's best performance in among any of his movies. But it was nonetheless Rod Steiger, who was, of course, wonderful in the film, who got the Oscar nomination. And he won. Stanley Kramer's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh, completed this remarkable hat-trick of films in 1967. and. Um, like uh, the other two, also further challenged uh, racial barriers. But significantly, Poitier had to tamp down the anger of his previous role. I mean, way down, in order to play his character of a handsome doctor who is brought home by the daughter, uh, played by Catherine Ross, of a white, wealthy couple, Um, themselves played by Spencer Tracy, in Katherine Hepburn, whose blessing in the movie is required before um, the Poitiers and Ross characters are, in effect, allowed to marry. Now, this movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, is often routinely dismissed these days by some critics who find it contrived and overly earnest in its uh, racial politics. But back then in 1967, I mean, few considered it as such. And as Variety's uh, Tim Gray reminds us, it was only six months um, before the movie opened that year in 1967 that the Supreme Court, in fact, overturned the laws against interracial marriage. Yes, there were laws against interracial marriage in 1967 uh, that were still in effect in 17 American states. So racially divided was the country in those days and to some extent, uh, still remains today. Now, Sidney Poitier's rise as an important film actor had of course run parallel with his longstanding and outspoken advocacy for civil rights, most visibly as part of a Hollywood contingent that took part in the 1963 March on Washington. That of course was the event in which uh, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. But he was also an activist who sought economic justice for the poor. And in an era of sit-ins, freedom rides, and mass marches, his persona, both on screen and off, always so thoughtful, peaceful, and cool, one that radiated goodness, in fact, and became Became almost as much as associated with the civil rights movement, I think, as Martin Luther King himself. Um, almost as if it were the um, to use a contemporary word, <laughs> a contemporary word, an avatar, an on-screen avatar for the for the um, for the very public political role that King himself was playing in those days. Um, Harry Belafonte is, of course, another uh, American a former very closely associated with the civil rights moment, uh, movement of the period and who was himself a close friend of both uh, King and Poitier. And it was he who convinced Poitier to help deliver $70,000 to Freedom Summer volunteers in 1964. And in explaining the magnitude of Poitier's influence in the 1960s, Bella, Belafonte would later say, you know, I don't think, I don't think anyone else in the world could have been anointed with the responsibility of creating a new image of black people and especially black men, quote unquote. And perhaps this is undoubtedly Sidney Poitier's greatest accomplishment. He almost single-handedly changed for many viewers the image of Black men in particular in American cinema. But about his personal style, which, you know, remained low-key and largely non-confrontational during this period of great strife in American history, Sidney Poitier once wrote, um, particularly in the context of those who found his stance somewhat problematic and not being radical enough. And I quote him here for my part in all of this, all I can say is that there is a place for people who are angry and defiant. And sometimes that serves a purpose, but that's never been my role personally in the struggle. Furthermore, he said that he knew a naked truth about Hollywood that the motion picture industry was not yet ready to entertain more than one minority person at that level. And I knew it too, he said, but I could not fight that. Quote, unquote. James Baldwin's 1968 Look magazine profile of Poitiers captured the actor's exceptionalism, but also define this problem, Poitier's isolation within the Hollywood industry. And while critical of many of Poitier's movies for what he regarded as the, as the largely a kind of disavowal of the truly Black American experience presented within them, Baldwin expressed great appreciation and understanding of the actor's eminence and talent insofar as he saw Poitiers' profound gift as an actor, that it was to give more of the reality of the Black American experience than was written on the page. It was necessary for Poitiers' acting skill to transcend the limitations of what was allowed on the surface in these movies. And it's his acting, his acting alone, really, that allows us to glimpse something of the depths of the truth, the horrible truth of the Black American experience up to this time. In the words of Cornell professor Samantha N. Shepard, Writing in the Atlantic after Poitier's death, and I quote her here: Even with his superstardom, Poitier was constrained by the industry's conservative ambitions and disinterest in black complexity. With his sexuality neutered and his dignity firmly in place, Poitier embodied a model minority in films, a noble ebony saint who represented a palatable blackness and interracial harmony during a fraught time of racial struggle. In American history. And so his non-threatening characters who challenged systems by working within them were thoroughly embraced by white audiences." Now, as Poitiers popularity peaked among white audiences, it began to wane somewhat among a few at least in the black community, especially um, intellectuals, writers, and those among the more militant in their politics, um, like the Black Panthers, for example. And perhaps in an attempt to address this somewhat, Poitier made one of his lesser known movies um, entitled The Lost Man in 1969, which is a virtual remake of um, the classic Odd Man Out. Uh, In this case, Poitier plays a Black radical on the run from the police rather than an IRA fugitive, which is the case in the 1947 original film. Um, he may also attempt it to add a little bit of complexity to his image in this period as well in making a romantic comedy um, that same year entitled For Love of Ivy, in which he starred uh, with Abby Lincoln. But um, despite these efforts, he did begin to pass out of fashion gradually in the 1970s, especially with the rise of independent and considerably more confrontational Black filmmakers like Gordon Parks and Melvin Van Peebles, who helped usher in a generation of what is commonly referred to as Black exploitation films, films that featured violent, sexually dynamic heroes. And such movies are often seen as a reaction against the image of the clean cut, composed and far more conciliatory black leading man associated with Sidney Poitier. Now, even if people were beginning to forget just how angry his Mr. Tibbs character could be, um, he may have used that as an impetus to revive the Mr. Tibbs character in that he performed what I think is probably his most famous role in two sequels. They call me Mr. Tibbs and the organization both made in the early 70s, but I think it's fair to say that the results were mixed at best in the case of both films. Also in the 1970s, uh, Poitier, then in his, uh, in his 40s, turned to directing and producing movies himself. Perhaps among the most notable of these ventures is the superb, adventurous Black-cast Western, Buck and the Preacher, made in 1972, which humorously upends many clichés of the genre in the face of a white supremacist villainy. And it's a movie in which he acted opposite his friends, Harry Belafonte and Ruby Dee. He also went on to direct a series of ostensibly apolitical inner-city comedies, Uptown, Saturday Night, made in 1974, Let's Do It Again, in 1975, and a piece of the action in 1977, in which he, uncharacteristically up to this point, played a scheming, if charming, near do well it's, it's, He's really quite wonderful in these movies, um, although not always appreciated as such. He also directed in this period, but did not star in the very popular comedy, Stir Crazy from 1980, which stars Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Now, all of these comedies, uh, while not necessarily impressing the critics of the day, were box office successes. Probably the predominantly white critics thought they lacked the social, the overt social significance of his earlier work. And. Not that he had given that up entirely, I guess more characteristic, uh, more characteristic of his earlier work was a documentary that he made in this period, a documentary about his hero, Paul Robson, uh, entitled Tribute to an Artist, for which he provided the narration. But after that, he stayed off screen for several years before reemerging in 1988 in a brisk thriller entitled Little Nikita in playing an FBI agent on the track of International Spies. And in 1991, he appeared in the lead role of the ABC drama, Separate But Equal, a dramatization of the life of Thurgood Marshall, the first black American Supreme Court justice. So certainly he had never and would never turn his back on the social significance of his earlier work. The year afterwards in 1992, in fact, he received the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award, the first black actor to be given the accolade. One thinks of Sidney Boitier in relation to firsts throughout his life, throughout his career. He was a man who achieved much in that regard. In 1995, for example, more accolades followed, including the Kennedy Center Honor, which ushered in another busy period in the movies, including a sequel to Serve with Love 2, made for television, in 1996. Uh, much more notably, perhaps, was his portrayal of Nelson Mandela, uh, for which he was widely praised in the movie Mandela and de Clerk* made in 1997, also for television. And that same year, the political thriller, The Jackal, in which he played um, the FBI's deputy director. In 2002, quite memorably, Poitier was given an honorary Oscar for his career's work that noted how far he had gone in representing the Hollywood industry with, and I quote here, dignity, style, and intelligence. And at that same Oscar ceremony in 2002, Denzel Washington became the first black actor since Sidney Poitier to win the best actor award for his role that year in the film training day. Accepting the award that night, Washington said, and I quote, I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There is nothing that I would rather do, sir, end quote. And that night Halle Berry won best actress Then Jamie Foxx in 2004, followed by Forest Whitaker in 2006 and Oscars for supporting performances have since gone to Morgan Freeman, Jennifer Hudson, Octavia Spencer, and other Black performers. Indeed, this year alone, there are four more nominations, including the Ozon favorite for Best Actor, Will Smith for his movie King Richard, um, but also Denzel Washington, again, this time for The Tragedy of Macbeth. And all of this reflecting the doors that Sidney Poitier had opened for Black performers all those years earlier with his own nomination for The Defiant Ones, and Oscar Victory for Lilies of the Field. Now, amidst all these accolades, Sidney Poitier published two more memoirs, The Measure of a Man, a Spiritual Autobiography in 2000, and Life Beyond Measure, Letters to My Great-Granddaughter in the year 2008. He also served as the non-resident Bahamian ambassador to Japan between 1997 and 2007, and was concurrently the Bahamian ambassador ambassador, excuse me, to UNESCO. Also, in 2009, 35 years after having been given an honorary knighthood in the United Kingdom, President Barack Obama, citing, and I quote, his relentless devotion to breaking down social and racial barriers, end quote, awarded Sidney Poitier's the Presidential Medal of Freedom. What an amazing life, and one filled with so many great accomplishments, both on screen and off. This has been Stephen Tomlinson for the Code St. Luke Public Library. If you wish to watch some of Sidney Poitier's films, you can do so through any number of means, um, including the library streaming site Canopy, that's Canopy spelled with a K, where you can find both the defiant ones, uh, but also a very interesting documentary about Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright behind *A Raisin in the Sun*, which predominantly features uh, Poitier. And over on the other library streaming site, Hoopla Digital, Digital excuse me, you can find um, Poitier's nineteen sixty-one movie *Paris Blues*. We also have several DVD versions of his movies, including. Uh, in addition to the Defiant Ones, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? In the Heat of the Night No Way Out, Blackboard Jungle, Edge of the City, A Patch of Blue, and Something of Value. You can also get from the library physical copies of his three memoirs as well. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this look at the life, career, and social activism of this most remarkable of men, the incomparable. Sidney Poitier Poitiers. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation in the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote Saint Luke, visit cotesaintluke.org. Have a great day.